Hello, hello, Femme fans. Before we jump into our awesome interview today, I wanted to ask you a giant favor. We are at the end of 2021, and it is time for end-of-year giving. We've accomplished so much this year to improve women's health through innovation. I am in awe of the incredible companies I meet every single day. You all inspire me to do more to advance the industry. But in order to create more podcast episodes, grow our virtual community, publish more market research, and produce events, we need funding. So I'm asking you, please show your support by making an end-of-year tax-deductible donation at femtechfocus.org. For those that are a monthly donor or have made your end-of-year donation already, thank you from the bottom of my nerdy feminist heart. We couldn't do our work without your support. If you'd like to join their efforts in making a donation yourself, just go to femtechfocus.org. Thanks. My name is Kathy Lee Sepsik. I'm the founder and CEO of Femesis. And to me, Femtech means innovative technologies that offer empowering choices to improve the healthcare for women worldwide. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode is brought to you by Witham. Witham is a forward-thinking, technology-driven advisory and accounting firm committed to helping companies be more profitable, efficient, and productive in today's complex business environment. Witham's dedicated Femtech team is proud to partner with the members of the Femtech community. Get to know their team at witham.com backslash femtech. Okay, Fem fans, in today's episode, I interview Kathy Lee Sepsik, CEO and founder of Femesis. Femesis is a publicly traded biomedical company focused on transforming women's healthcare. Their product, FemView, is available in the market to physicians to assess fallopian tubes through ultrasound, since sometimes infertility is caused by blockages in the fallopian tubes. I did not know that. Their other product candidate is FemBlock, a non-surgical product for permanent birth control, and Femicide, a sperm delivery product for infertility treatment. Each of these products targets the fallopian tubes, which we learn in this episode are as small as spaghetti. I am not sure how big or how small I thought the fallopian tubes were, but I definitely did not have noodles in mind. Kathy founded Femesis in 2004 and continues to serve as the company's CEO even after it went public in June of this year, 2021. She holds over 100 patents globally for Femesis's products and product candidates. Learn more about Femesis at Femesis.com. That's F-E-M-A-S-Y-S.com. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brittany. It's a pleasure to be here. It is so nice to have you. Where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from my office at Femesis in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. Is there a lot of femtech in Atlanta? 
No, not really. Oh, we're, we're, I think so. the only one that I'm aware of, um, but there's not really a lot of femtech in general. So yeah, yeah. There's definitely some like um, hot spots showing up, but Atlanta, Georgia, I think I know of one, maybe two startups in the Georgia area. So thanks for holding down the fort for us there. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's kick off the interview with learning more about you and your background. Where are you from? You know, what did you go to school for if you did? And, you know, you're now the CEO of a publicly traded company. So that must be a crazy journey. Just kind of give us some highlights about yourself. So I'm originally from the New York, New Jersey area. I came to Atlanta in 1995 and joined my first startup. Um, Prior to that, I got my bachelor's degree um, in biochemistry from Rutgers, so State University of of New Jersey, and ended up getting my MBA from the same university and went straight into med tech and worked for a larger company called Terumo, which is... um, was at the U.S. headquarters and then moved to Georgia and have been here ever since and started Femesis in 2004. Was it your first company you started? It is my first company. Oh my that gosh, my? awesome. <laughs> you know, when my first startup died, my lead investor said, oh, now you're a real entrepreneur because <laughs> you have a loss in the college. Lost all his money and other people's, and I had to close it and wonder who I was or what I was going to do. So um, apparently, his definition is not like the law, though, because obviously you've done it and you you haven't failed. You've been wildly successful, so that's so cool. So, how long have you been working at Femesis? So since two thousand four. So coming up on eighteen years. Holy moly, that's amazing! Uh, You're like uh, one of the older FM tech companies, like. <laughs> Way before femtech was a word, you know? Yep. yep. And I'm thrilled that we're starting to see words like femtech and yeah. people interested in women's health. It's certainly helping us. Was, the company, this. was the company always called Femesis? I named the company, yes. And it was always called Femesis. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is so cool. <laughs> so usually there's like, oh yeah, and we pivoted and we changed and then, th- then we were bought, we bought it back, like, you know, all this stuff. So interesting. Well, what does Femesis do? So we are classified as a biomedical company, but in essence, what it means is we're developing technologies explicitly for women. Um, we're targeting the in-office environment for um, for our application of our products. So not the hospital, not the surgery center. We're looking at office-based products. And I am the lead inventor on all of the technologies at Femesis as well. So it's very deliberate what we're working on, um, very intentional. We internally conceive. I've, I've, re- I've signed everything over to Femesis and then we develop it, put it through our research program. And we also have our own in-house manufacturing at our facility. So multiple clean rooms. So all of our products are manufactured at our facility. And so there's a lot of infrastructure, but it's a true startup story. We started out of my home for a few years and then graduated to a facility and on and on we went. But that was really important for me to not just look at the products, but how are we going to bring them to market? Uh, um, How did you learn how to make medical devices and stuff? So I was in med tech at a number of companies, one, two, three, three primarily before I started Femesis and a couple of them were startups. So I got to see it from its ground level, look at the investment 
piece of it to R&D and production um, and then full-blown manufacturing and what that takes to, you know, what, what, it, what all of that's entailed. Um, and I always wanted to make sure that we had the infrastructure, that we wouldn't be beholden to someone else. I didn't want to be virtual. And I wanted to make sure we had more than one product also, not a pure play, but have a pipeline so we could feed it ourselves and make sure we had lots of products to bring to the market. Um, so those were, those were some of the initial goals. So we're, we're, we're doing that. You did it. You, did it. you still are doing it. It's growing. I, I want to talk about each of the products you have and like kind of the, the, why does the world need it? But before we do that, I'd love to stick on this founder journey a little bit more because it's so unique. It's so cool. Um, at what point did you get funding? Did you fundraise before you went public or was going public your oh, fundraiser? Tell no, us about we, that journey. Yeah, yeah we, we definitely fundraised before we went public. We just went public. Oh. Uh, June of two, 2021. Okay. Um, so prior to that, it was all private placements and we... I did my first round, which is very typical of a startup. It was more of a family and friends round. It's about a million dollars. And then we went on from there and fundraising was pretty regular for us. Um, smaller amounts, frequent yeah. um, until we got a little bit further along in the 2016, 2017 timeframe where we raised a, a larger bolus of capital. And then we didn't raise again till the IPO. So we've, you know, just really put our capital to good use, very capital efficient, um, good stewards of the money that we're raising, feel very strongly that when you take someone's dollar, it's like your own and you need to put it to good use. Um, and so we, we've been very, um, very grateful for the investors that have supported us. I mean, it's hard being women's health. It's not the darling of the venture community. So it, it, it was tricky. And we did raise primarily from family offices. Okay. And we did also have a strategic come in on our round before IPO. Medtronic invested in the company. So that was really great. It kind of really, um, you know, good housekeeping seal of approval to have a, the largest med tech company in the world come in on one of your rounds. So really? did you pitch did. to VCs? Did you pitch to VCs and they just like didn't get it or? You know, we did. Um, I pitched to a lot of VCs actually. Um, they were really good about always wanting to take the meeting. There were a few things that made it tricky. Um, one of our products, and we haven't gotten into that yet, but the product I started the company to advance is a permanent birth control option in office. Um, you know, the bar I set for us was to develop something safe and as natural as possible for women, do no harm for something that's a basic healthcare need. And at the time when I started the company, there were other companies working in the space and we did have one that didn't fare very well, had a lot of safety issues, was very, you know, was on every TV station. It just became very well known. You're probably aware of it. Um, it's a coil product. And that was kind of a dead on same indication. And we took a very different approach from all of the, those types of approaches, putting a permanent implant into the tube. Uh, we don't create our blockage that way. I can explain how we do it, but we were so different that I think people had a hard time kind of getting around it and going, well, if all these companies are doing it this way and you're the only one doing it this way, hmm, maybe, maybe you're not onto something. So, you know, we are the one that's remaining now 
And we'll, you know, we're the one fighting the fight to be the option for women because right now all that women have is surgical tubal ligation, which has been around since the 1800s. So that is the only option for women today worldwide. And so, you know, FemBlock is the name of the product, has the op- opportunity to really change that for women. I cannot wait to get more into that. That is a topic we haven't touched on and this show yet, which is like crazy to me. When I first started the podcast, I thought, I wonder if I'll have enough people to interview for a year. And now we're going on number three, <laughs> third year, you know? So I'm like, oh, no, no, no. And we still have topics I haven't talked about. So yeah, we'll never stop the show probably. I'm so obsessed with it. Um, but, uh, I, you know, it's interesting you're saying that there was um, another kind of coil permanent sterilization product that had a lot of lawsuits and issues and it was in the news and it kind of hurt a lot of people that around it, right? And that's similar. I see that with um, single blood drop tests. People are like, oh, is this Elizabeth Holmes? Is this Serranos? Or with yeah. vaginal mesh. Oh, you're going to put mesh in there. Mesh is the worst. Mesh, you know, everyone's heard those lawsuit commercials late at night. Have you suffered from vaginal mesh, you know? And so um, that is, it's unfortunate, but also like awesome that you've persevered through that um, because women deserve all the things and they deserve things that work and that are good for us. And so it's good that those other ones are stopped, but it's bad that everyone gets kind of nervous around it. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, did you uh, ever see yourself being the CEO of a publicly traded company? What's it been like? I actually did see myself like getting to this point. Um, I prepared for a number of years to, to run a public company. I really worked really hard to make sure I knew what that was going to take and uh, what was going to be involved and embraced it. And it just turned out to be the right timing when we when we went public. Um, it's been a little bit difficult post the public offering for, for all micro cap and small cap stocks. But um, but it really, it's, it's helping us have access to capital we wouldn't have otherwise. It's allowing me to get the, the word out about what we're doing, about me, my journey to the products, which is the most important part of this, and what that could stand to do for women's health around the world. Yeah. And I wouldn't have had that opportunity without having a public vehicle. So it really was essential for us. So I always envisioned it in, as a possibility in the grand plan. Well, cool. Well, let's jump into it. What are all the products that y'all have? And then let's kind of dive into them one by one. But tell us about all the products first a little bit, like overview. We have two main products focused in reproductive health. And we looked at two ends of the spectrum. So we have that permanent birth control product, which I mentioned called FemBlock. Um, and, and in these categories, there's a lot of commonality in that what we find is antiquated options. They're very old. There's limited um, in everything that we're doing. So we have the potential to change standard of care to like bring us into the, the current day as far as technology. So that permanent birth control is on one end. And then we're working on a what we call our front end of infertility, something on the affordable end of care. Uh, a lot of innovation has happened with IVF. It's a more expensive end of care. Most women never get there. And so our goal was to bring something forward on that front end and kind of revolutionize that. Um, so those are the two main product initiatives. Within those categories, we also have diagnostic products. So we are the developers of Fembu, and that has been on the market. And we're really, really 
pleased with that product and how well it's doing and how many women that we're helping, but we don't have a sales force uh, domestically. There's nothing commercial, but we are selling quite a few of these Femviews because they're really helpful for women. And in this case, we've replaced age old technology as well. Um, before our product, women uh, needed to go by referral to a radiology center to have her tubes evaluated, which is an essential part of the infertility examination. You know, what could be the issue with her being infertile? And sometimes, uh, you know, it's been quoted up to 30% of the time, it's the fallopian tubes, actually. So the only way they could view them is a radiologist, radiology, under fluoroscopy, x-ray dye, et cetera. And we're, again, the first uh, folks to develop a product that would deliver uh, natural saline and air contrast or bubbles. And we're able to visualize the tubes with ultrasound and we're able to use any existing ultrasound. So physicians can conduct this exam and look at all female factors in the same visit. Wow. And that's the fem view. That is the fem view. Yep. That is so amazing. What can, uh, sorry to interrupt you. Is that all the products before I start no, asking there's, questions? No, there's <laughs> more. So, and FemView is essential prior to doing a therapeutic option, right? So if we're going to try to get someone to get pregnant by way of an intrauterine insemination approach, um, you would need to know you have at least one fallopian tube open. So there's a lot of synergy in the product offerings. On the other end of the spectrum, when we talk about permanent birth control, it was really important for us to look at developing what we think is an ideal solution for this problem. What we didn't want to fall short is have women have to go to radiology to have a confirmatory test. And that was the case for the predecessor product, the COIL. Um, and so we advanced this technology so that she can come back to the same provider in her in the office and have a confirmatory test that's under ultrasound and actually get that level of assurance that it worked for her before she relies on it for who knows how long yeah. to come. So those are our two reproductive health products. We also have a product for tissue sampling and what we developed. And again, it's another example of something that's gonna replace very age old technology. Um, and they, this product is also cleared the regulatory milestones like FEMBU. So we're commercializing it this year. Um, post our IPO, we're now able to bring forward the manufacturing, but it is an endocervical sampler. So it, sur it samples the cervix. So for earlier detection of cervical cancer. So if somebody has an HPV test that's concerning or a pap smear that's concerning, tissue sampling is generally required. And this is an advancement in that category. Um, and so we'll continue development for products like these um, that are targeting the OB-GYN in the office environment. So all of them kind of fit that same criteria. Oof, I have questions about all of these because they okay. are so interesting to me. All right. So endocervical sampler, how is it different from a pap smear? Isn't that what a pap smear is? It takes a sample of the cervix? It does, but it uh, doesn't go through full laboratory testing. Okay. So it's more of a preliminary screening. Uh -huh. So when that comes back suspicious or if there is a problem with the HPV test, uh, that's when a cervical sample needs to be taken. And that's when it's more tissue and it's sent through for laboratory processing. It's often done with what's called colposcopy, which is when they visualize the cervix, um, which can be challenging to pick up cancerous cells since it's a small canal. Uh, so the sampling is, a, is an important part of that overall. Um, so it's you know, cervical cancer rates are down, fortunately, because of HPV testing. That's wonderful. But when if somebody has an issue, um, you know, the tissue sampling is going to is really important. 
Yeah. What are we, what are we doing now? How do we, um, the tissue sampler that's on the market is called a Kevorkian, believe it or not. Okay. Um, and it's the canal is this a, a round circular tube mm-hmm. envision like a pipe. Yeah. Um, and the Kevorkian is a rectangular metal product. Um, and they physically have to scrape it into a basket and we have a device that's round that goes with the tissue and it contains contains the sample in the device so there's minimal contamination and it's a fairly pain-free procedure that is is incredible as you said you know like you just described what I would presume to be a torture device is a current standard of care so thank you for what you're doing and making our experience better in the OB-GYN which is already relatively uncomfortable a lot of times. Um, let's talk about the uh, um, FemView for a second. I'll, I'll go backwards. So FemView using bubbles and ultrasound to look at the fallopian tube health. Can you start by telling us um, what can be wrong with fallopian tubes? Sure. Um, so as a result of STDs, gonorrhea, chlamydia, um, women can have blocked tubes and majority of the time they're asymptomatic. They yeah. have no idea that they have a blockage and you really only have to have one tube to conceive, but you need to have at least an open tube. So about 30% of the time, the tube is the suspicious factor. It can be an issue in the uterine cavity. If it is oftentimes she's bleeding or she's having pain. So there's some type of suspicion. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the tubes, it's generally very silent. So it's really important to do a diagnostic test before any intervention is takes place, even medication, because you can put somebody on something like Clomid where you're stimulating ovulation, but if she doesn't have an open tube, it's for naught. So yes. that baseline exam needs, it, it's required that the tube be evaluated before any therapeutic or medic medication is provided. Um, so FEMBU really is important because we're moving the exam. It's less expensive. It's with her provider who's accustomed to delivering products into the uterine cavity. We're using natural saline and air contrast. So there's no radiopaque dyes, nothing she could be allergic to. And we're not subjecting her to radiation. You know, we're using ultrasound. And so those things make a difference and she can get the results uh, real time. So the physician will know if there's an issue with her tube during that exam, as opposed to having to wait for the radiologist to write up a report and send it in. So everything can be done in the same visit and then treatment planning can begin, which is important when somebody is infertile and wants to get pregnant yesterday, you know, how do we make sure that we're timely and that we're giving them the answers that we need so that treatment planning can be uh, handled accordingly. You know, fallopian tubes can be unblocked or they just make a plan for using the other tube. So it's actually, um, it's possible to, if it's, if it's mucus or something that's movable in the tube, it's a known uh, possibility with exams like FEMVIEW and the, the radiology exam. It's called an HSG, hysterosalpenogram. Um, those exams have high pressure with their contrast. So it's known that you can move that mucus out of the way. And there have been examples. I've talked to patients actually by way of physicians that call and say, you need to talk to this patient and hear this amazing story where, and we just had one recently where the patient was infertile 16 months, had a FEMVIEW, pregnant. 
two years later, oh years later, three years later, infertile again, Fembu, pregnant. So this is, a first, this is a first example of a patient I've heard that has gotten pregnant twice after a Fembu, but I've heard uh, several stories of women that have gotten pregnant. Now it can happen. It's not always going to happen, but it is a possibility. Um, and certainly it's a baseline exam. So it's the first step. Yeah. It's kind of, you guys clean their pipes out essentially kind of right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yep. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. This is so cool. Um, so I have a question about this permanent birth control It's something we really haven't talked about on the show. Um, all I know is that women get their tubes tied. I know that that's probably no one's in there probably cut making sailor knots out of fallopian tubes. Right. So what is, what does a tubes tied mean? Um, like what, what's the current standard of care? So uh, laparoscopic tubal ligation. So they go in laparoscopically in small incisions, but incisions nonetheless, full general anesthesia done in the hospital setting. Um, and then they go in and they generally cauterize the tube. So burn them and then place a clip or a ring. So there is something awesome. left behind um, because if they just cauterize, sometimes those tubes come together and recannulize and, and women can women get pregnant post uh, tubal ligation. It doesn't happen very often, but it can. Uh, right. It's an amazing thing, the body, right? Um, but yeah, so rings and clips are, gen are generally used and left behind. And then she's sewed back up and done. And so there is recovery time. Uh, she has come on out from anesthesia. So there's anesthetic risk, there's incisions, it's surgery, you know, so all the risks that are involved there. And, you know, there's post uh, procedure potential issues as well around the incision, fever, infection, et cetera. Yeah. I actually wondered about that because cauterizing is, is burning, right? You're using like a laser, you're burning it. And I kind of imagined in my mind, I'm not that kind of doctor. I'm a geneticist, laboratory microbiologist. So I'm not the MD kind. I'm like, if they burnt, uh, burnt through these tubes, why and like the ovaries are just like hanging out like they're floating around but it sounds more like they kind of you kind of scar it with the burning and then they put some kind of clip or ring so that's why the ovaries stay in the body too well the ovaries are separate right so right and then the tubes you know literally they do cauterize them and separate them and they want to make sure that they don't reconnect so they are not even connected anymore to the uterus at all cauterize rings ring over i mean there's different techniques yeah. but um yeah the goal is to make sure that they do not reconnect wow interesting interesting and um i mean for our listeners who you know maybe new or they don't know all the uh, biology women still have their periods right even when they have this done right yeah. yes And now a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, Fem fans, did you know that the birth control pill was invented in the 1960s? Well, it's 2021 and we are still taking our daily dose of hormones. It's time for contraception to get an update. Meet Fexi, the first and only FDA approved hormone free on demand contraception vaginal gel. Fexi comes in a box of 12 pre-filled applicators and is applied up to an hour before sex. This innovative solution is brought to you by EvoFem Biosciences, NASDAQ EVFM. 
EvoFem is developing and commercializing innovative products to address unmet needs in women's sexual and reproductive health, including hormone-free, women-controlled contraception, and protection from certain sexually transmitted infections, including chlamydia and gonorrhea. EvoFem recently launched the House Rules campaign with Fexi brand ambassador Annie Murphy, the Emmy Award-winning actress from Schitt's Creek fame. Learn more about Fexi at Fexi.com or EvoFem.com. Be sure to check out the House Rules video on YouTube. It is hilarious and amazing. That's Fexi, P-H-E-X-X-I.com. And now, back to the interview. So, you know, you kind of described it like it's this big to do, right? When it's a surgery, right? She's going under anesthesia. She's getting her organs cauterized and rings put in and permanent. Like, so what could be, first of all, why do women do this? If eventually they'll hit menopause, why would they do this in the meantime? I mean, most of the temporary birth controls require some type of regimen, right? Um, Daily pills, rings, patches, um, majority of the most common ones are hormonally based. And what we know, which is on every one of the packaging as women age over the age of 35, particularly we're at higher risk for blood clots, we're at higher risk for breast cancer. So remaining on the hormones as we age is actually, uh, can be very problematic. And so having an option, you know, option if you're done, you, female sterilization actually is the most common approach when you additively look at the number of women that have undergone it. It's roughly 800,000 women a year that in the United States or in the world in the U.S. In the U.S. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm sure the pandemic is going to affect these numbers. You know, we don't know what that's going to look like since they're elective hospital procedures, but that's been a pretty stable number decade, you know, year over year, about 800,000. So how many, do you know how many men get their tubes tied? I forget the, what they call it. Uh, well, vasectomy and yeah, it's about yeah. 500,000. <laughs> okay. Every year as well, but it's yeah. also surgery. And honestly, I really think if there's a suitable option for women that men will gladly step aside and let their female partner take care of it. Um, and just, I mean, women generally are the ones that are burdened with the contraceptive options. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we look at birth control pills and patches and, you know, IUDs are a good example. I mean, that's, it's meant to be temporary, you know, temporary, a reversible method, bridge someone between children as an example. And we're seeing a lot of use of IUDs. Um, the, the market share leaders hormonally based and women will get two, three, four of these to bridge themselves to menopause and an implants left behind for five years or six years or seven years, um, whichever the, the particular uh, product that they choose. And it's hormonally based with those risks that I've already mentioned. So um, FemBlock is placed very similar to an IUD. So we think someone who would elect to have an IUD would find perhaps FemBlock to be a suitable option. It's, it's placed very similarly through the cervix into the uterine cavity, and we don't leave anything behind but a temporary biopolymer that degrades over time. And what we leave behind as the ultimate solution is scar tissue, which is not so dissimilar from what we see people have when they're infertile by way of an STD. So we know that they're generally asymptomatic, and it's very durable. And so that was what we set out to do is leave nothing behind, no implant. 
you mentioned meshes. There's lots of examples in women's health. You leave something behind that was supposed to be permanent. It starts to degrade. It presents safety issues, problems. So we just wanted to develop a procedure that we knew that most women would find very tolerable. So we made it akin to an IUD. And then the next step up was to make sure we didn't leave anything behind yeah. and create scar tissue so that women could rely on it for the duration through, through to menopause. So it's a special kind of um, material, biopolymer, you said. Um, can you tell us more about that? How does that work? So it is delivered as a liquid. It is a tissue adhesive. It does um, turn into a solid when it arrives at the tissue. So it stops moving down the tube. And we only need a small amount into the tube. The, the fallopian tubes are very small, like the size of spaghetti. So the really? majority of the, yep, yep, very tiny, one to two millimeters. So a lot of people don't know that. And of course, the cavity is much larger. So the bulk of the material um, is delivered to the opening of the tube. So in contact with the uterine cavity, and then a small remnant amount will go into the tube to affect that kind of response that I mentioned. So it's really a wound healing response. And then we leave behind scar tissue and the biopolymer just degrades into small particulate and leaves. And where in the process is FemBlock in development? So we, um, many years into this now, but we've amassed a significant amount of data in a safety data set, which mm -hmm. became very important given what happened with the predecessor product. So we have, uh, um, we had 183 patients in a safety data set. So quite substantive in number, and we're following them out five years. So we, what we've seen in that data set is whatever adverse events or safety concerns that may have occurred, they occurred within majority of them within day seven and most of them on the first day. The events fell into primarily two categories, some spotting and bleeding and some pain and cramping, which is very customary anytime something is delivered into the uterine cavity. So the safety profile we're, we're pretty happy about. Um, and we are currently have an active trial right now where our patients are undergoing two confirmatory tests, the radiology test and our ultrasound test. So we can once and for all compare the two and bring the best test forward. And our hopes is that that will be the ultrasound test for the obvious reasons um, that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, women... The other, you know, is there a trend of women changing their mind after things like this? You know, it sounds it's permanent, right? It's technically permanent. So women are counseled heavily on, are you sure you want permanent? Um, there are a small percentage of women that may change their mind. Um, we we're also very proud of this. This is a bar we set as well. We leave no harm. So we didn't want to, we made sure we don't affect the uterine cavity. So should she require future intervention, if she ends up having bleeding problems, as an example, she can get that intervention because we don't have anything in the uterine cavity, nothing protruding into the cavity, um, like some of the technologies that came before us. Um, she could also get an IVF. So if she, because she was fertile, she has no problems with her uterine cavity. If for some reason in that very small percentage of cases, that door is still open. How interesting. Do you, besides just being, and not just, I don't mean to diminish that whatsoever, but like it being a better option than what's currently available. 
does this technology like empower women in other ways or like, is this have impact in the world in a way I'm not thinking of besides like, and don't get burnt in surgery. Like this is more convenient and, and better for you. Is there other impacts this could have? Well, I, I mean, I think it's so empowering because we're developing a non-surgical approach. So it truly has worldwide applicability. There's no surgery suite. It's done in an office environment. Uh, So women can have access to something permanent, where in markets, particularly around the world, that's an impossibility or it's extremely dangerous. And we've all heard stories of what's happened in other countries where women have undergone surgical procedures for this, a tubal ligation, and have not fared well as a result. So empowering women to be able to get something, we leave nothing behind. There's no incisions. There's no way anyone would even know that she had the procedure as an example. And for some countries, that's important. Um, And I think empowering women to be able to control the number of children that they have is extremely empowering. I mean, we think about the demand on natural resources, what that looks like. We think about countries where women are having seven kids and they're babies themselves, right? Babies are raising babies because they don't end up, you know, surviving some of those pregnancies. So being able to have a healthy outlook and then not subjecting them to things like hormones when they're done, you know, how do we get people off of medications like that when it's not necessary? Um, You know, how do we take that out of the equation? So this empowers them to be able to do all of that. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, What do you see as the future of Femesis? You know, we, we have clinical work ahead of us. FemBlock is going to require our next trial after the one I mentioned that we're currently um, uh, performing right now is the trial that we'll, we'll seek approval for. So I see clinical heavy for us. Um, we have an infertility product that we didn't really touch on, but it's very similar to FemBlock and how it delivers to the patient. And in that product, it's called Femiseed. Um, we're delivering sperm directly to the fallopian tube. So in FemBlock's case, we deliver the biopolymer. In this case, we deliver the sperm and conception happens in the tube. And women ovulate naturally on one side or the other, which is also very easily detectable under ultrasound. So they can tell where the mature follicle is, and then we can put the sperm right where it needs to go. Um, And we think that's going to improve pregnancy rates because the current approach is the oldest approach for assisted reproductive care, and it's antiquated. And so that is our goal to kind of advance medicine with that particular product. And we're in a clinical trial for that one right now as well. And we'll seek to have that wrapped up next year. So we'll be at the point where we will uh, be able to potentially commercialize this therapeutic option alongside of our already available FemView for infertility while we're working on FemBlock. And then FemBlock will come thereafter and bring these solutions to the OB-GYN. So what I envision ultimately happening um, as we hit these milestones and as we bring these technologies forward is that we have the potential to change the face of gynecology and how women receive their care. We, we can empower gynecologists in their office to be able to do more treatments and, and procedures, which is where they want to be. And women will have safer, easier, more convenient, more affordable options afforded to them for these key needs. And, and we're looking, we want to be able to do that and then fill 
the pipeline with other necessary products that may not have as big of a market potential by way of dollars. So they're not going to make it on their own. But if they can come into the fold, you know, we can offer those types of solutions in totality to the same call point. Um, there really isn't anything for the OBGYNs right now. There's nothing new. Yeah. Yeah. So. This is Really interesting. I didn't anticipate this being an episode about the fallopian tubes. <laughs> no, you did you realize? Like, do you realize how your like your company is based on fallopian tubes? Is that like a special passion, or like, did you, you know, know that one day you looked back and you said, "Oh, damn, we're working on tubes." <laughs> well, I mean, it just, yeah. You know, I don't <laughs> think I explicitly said let's work on tubes, but I think yeah. it's you know reproductive health. Yeah. You know, how do we bring forward? And the tubes are such an essential part, okay. right? Because it's a conduit for the ovaries and the cavity. And it's one of the things that, you know, I think went amiss when we look at all of the technology that's been developed for the cavity and bleeding, fibroid management, all of that. Ovulation and exactly. The tubes have kind of uh, gone to the wayside. So yes, Uh, no one's really phrased it that way, Brittany. So tubes. Yeah. I like it. And they're little spaghetti sized. Yep. One to two millimeters at that front end. They get bigger at the end, you know, Well, they catch the egg coming from the ovaries, but, but they get really tiny as they're coming towards the, towards the uh, uterine cavity. So fascinating. One question about that insemination device before we hit our last two questions that our listeners love. Um, The insemination device, I've heard of intracervical insemination and then intrauterine insemination. Is intrafallopian too, but like a whole new category, or is that kind of the same as interuterine? So we technically deliver to the uterine cavity. We just do it in a specific location. Mm-hmm. So the current intrauterine devices are very undirected. And when you, when I mentioned, you know, it's like the size of spaghetti, the path of least resistance is to stay in the uterine cavity because that's a much bigger area, right? Um, and so that undirected approach has low digit success rates. Um, so what we're doing is placing in the uterine cavity, but right at the opening and allowing for the, for the sperm uh, through by way of the delivery to enter into the tube where it is a safe area. Uh, sperm can live there up to 72 hours um, and conception happens in the fallopian tube. So it is their point of destination and we are ensuring that they get there so they have a chance to do the job that they need to do. That's basically what we're doing. We're cutting the journey and making it very specific so they don't get confused and go to the wrong side. You know, we're, we're deliberate as far as where we deliver the sperm and we can see it by way of the ultrasound. So ultrasound technology is really enabling us a lot as well. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like a a Lyft driver dropping off at your gate versus just the airport, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Very cool. Well, our last two questions I'd love to ask you about is the first being, we have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs that listen, a lot of university graduate students. We see you, we love you. You're the future of women's health. Thank you for caring. Um, But they have, they're curious, what should I make? What, what's left in women's health that needs innovating? So what's an area in women's health that you think still needs innovation? I mean, there's a number of areas specifically in the office. I mean, that's where we're targeting. This is where I see medicines deployment is most favorable when you think of healthcare economics, when you think of safety. So there's a lot of improvements to be made. I mean, I mentioned our endocervical sampler as an example. I mean, it's just there, these are age old ways in which things have been approached. Um, So there's lots of opportunities, even the speculum, you know, and there's been some 
attempts at that. I mean, just everything you could imagine being done. How do we do it better? How do we bring it into this century, um, into this time, you know, and how do we leverage other technologies that have been advanced in other specialties and utilize it in women's health? So I think there are a number of opportunities. I guess more specifically, when we look at bleeding management as an example, we don't have a true office-based approach. So that's an area. I mean, women do contend with bleeding. And as we get older, it gets erratic. It can get heavy. It can get, you know, it can become problematic. You know, there are surgical approaches to that. You know, they're done in outpatient surgery centers or done in the hospital as an example. Um, You know, what would it look like if there could be a quick procedure for that um, in an office? You know, all the different various issues that women contend with. Is there a way to approach it and do it in the safest manner and deliver it in that office environment? Then women will have access, better access to it. Yep. yep. So listeners, I hear accessibility to treatment and um, convenience of treatment. And how does she not have to go under anesthesia? How can it just be performed by a doctor in her regular appointment? Yep. Yep. Healthcare delivery. Absolutely. And our last question is, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? I mean, it's like a chicken and egg. I think um, we need people advancing technologies in women's health, but we also need people to invest in women's health. And there's ESG focus now and lots of tailwinds around women's health and discussion, you doing what you do, which is so important to get the word out, but amassing that support and seeing some wins in women's health, I think will be important, but other specialties, you know, they, they, some of these investments, you know, investors are investing in companies that have preclinical data, you know, and then foregoing companies that have clinical data, you know, because women's health is not the darling of Wall Street. Um, but we need more investors to see the opportunity for what it is. Um, we're 51% of the population. It's important. And we have different reproductive needs. I mean, we built differently. Um, and so there is just, um, and then that will enable technologies to come off the sidelines and get advanced. But again, I think it's a chicken and egg when, when things don't make it, it's, they didn't get funding perhaps, or maybe they were the right wrong approach, but until we see better funding in women's health, I don't think this gets fixed. Absolutely. Money, 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 y'all. We need the money. We can't move forward without it. So, um, Kathy, thank you so much for all you do for women's health. Thank you for being a pioneer. Thank you for being successful in your endeavors to, you know, create more convenient, accessible products for women. Um, It is so awesome to have interviewed you, have you on the show, publicly traded company. I love having big success stories and you are definitely one of them. So thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Brittany. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my interview with Kathy Lee Sepsik, CEO and founder of Femesis, yet another successful femtech company that has paved the way for all of you early stage founders listening. Learn more about Femesis at Femesis.com. That's F-E-M-A-S-Y-S.com. Alrighty, Fem fans, don't forget to make your end of year donation at femtechfocus.org. If you donate $100 or more, you'll be sent a donor gift of your choice. Please give the show a five-star review and share it with a friend. Join our virtual community at femtechfocus.org and join the thousands of other Femtech founders, investors, and mentors advancing women's health. 
While in the virtual community, sign up to be a FEM Pro member for only $10 a month and get access to the FemTech Institute, a library of FemTech and startup lessons that are sure to help you advance your startup and teach you more about the FemTech industry. Keep an eye out for our monthly FemTech book club and subscribe to our newsletter. Again, please consider making a donation to FemTech Focus end of year's fundraising campaign. We are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.